Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my good friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks on today's show, we are pleased to have Professor Anthony Davies. Ron, how's it going? Very good, Ed. I'm so looking forward to this. Yes, it's going to be a wide-ranging conversation. Uh, Anthony, as he has told us to call him, is uh, is very erudite will, and, and, and often opines on everything and anything. So we're really <laughs> looking forward to that. We will not have, as we like to call it, the Tyler Cowen problem, which is... <laughs> <laughs> We're, uh, with with this with uh, with Anthony, so let me br- read his bio. Bring him on so we can start the conversation. Uh, Dr. Anthony Davis is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University, and the co-host of the podcast Words and Numbers with James Harrigan. He authors monthly columns on economics for public policy for the Philadelphia Inquirer and Pittsburgh Tribune Review. And he has written books on understanding statistics published by the Cato Institute. I'd love to ask him about that because I can't find it on the Cato Institute's website. And co-authored hundreds of op-eds, among others, the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, and Washington Post. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Anthony Davies. Thanks for having me on. Well, first, a couple of quick connections. First, uh, you should know that both of my in-laws are Duquesne grads, although they graduated in the late 60s. Uh, but I am very familiar with uh, Pittsburgh, having a family that of origin that started there. Love the area. I think it's one of the most underrated places uh, in the United States, actually, in my view. So I'm not sure how your, your feelings on that. But the other connection I wanted to make is in your bio, as I saw you went to the all-male Catholic Bishop Neumann High School in Williamsport, and I, too, am a graduate of an all-male Catholic institution, so for Shamanad High School in, in Mineola. So I I think that, that that changes us somehow. I think there's, there's something in there. But um, what I wanted to ask you right out of the gate uh, is I want to talk about inflation. You most recently did a, a great interview. Well, I guess it was a, a video piece for foundation of the Foundation for Economic Education refuting a Vox piece that uh, really misdefined education. So the, I'll ask the questions in succession and we can unpack them. What do most people think inflation is? What is it really? And why is that important? Yeah, that, that's great. So most people think inflation is simply a rise in prices. So you see the price of lumber go up and people say, oh, that's inflation. Or you see the price of you know milk go up. You say, oh, that's inflation. And it's not. Inflation is the rise in the average price level. So it could be the case that some prices go up. It could be the case that other prices go down. But if the average price level goes up, then we say we have an inflation. And, and so, and so the, the rise in a specific price doesn't, has nothing to do with inflation in, in that sense. Now, you know, what was your second question? <laughs> oh, sorry. No. So, so what is it really, right? You, you answered yeah, that. Yeah, why, yeah, isn't, okay. why, why is that distinction important too? Yeah, the, the distinction is important because prices are prices are these wonderful things that, that I don't think people other than economists think about that much. And that is prices communicate information. 
So if we want to know something like, um, would it be better if we spent our society's resources developing some new form of solar energy? Or would it be better if we spent society's resources um, making nuclear safer? What's, what's the better thing to do here? Now, you could imagine attempting to answer this question. You've got to collect all sorts of, of information and put it together, process this thing, and so on and so forth. Or you can simply refer to prices. And you see, if the price of solar starts going up relative to the price of nuclear, then it tells you that nuclear is a better use of our resources. So the, a price is, is a summary of all the relevant information, everything from production to how much people want a thing. And that's, that's what goes into the price. Inflation is a different matter. Inflation, generally speaking, is uh, reflecting a printing of money. So um, picture, picture, um, the ratio of the number of dollar bills to the number of goods and services. If your goods and services are increasing 10% every year and your money supply is increasing 10% every year, your prices will be stable. You'll have zero inflation. But if your money supply starts growing faster than the prices, than, than goods and services, then you start to get inflation. Prices on average start to rise. And I might have heard this, but it seems to be that the money supply has increased recently. I don't know where I heard that, but I th yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because I'm, I'm working on an op-ed right now. So just prior to our call, I was looking up um, figures on this and the, the money supply has, has increased dramatically. I mean, it was increased. It's been increasing since the 1970s when we went off the gold standard. And that's a whole separate conversation. But, but one of the major impacts of going off a gold standard is that all of a sudden the Federal Reserve is unconstrained. It can print as many dollar bills as it likes. And so what's happened, uh, along comes you know deficit spending and the Federal Reserve prints some money to, to facil facilitate that. We get into 2008, the housing crisis, and we have quantitative easing, which is the, um, the soft and fuzzy term for printing a lot of money. And so the money supply <laughs> goes up. And then, and then you hit the, the age of COVID. And again, we have this massive government spending that's financed by the printing of the money. We have some quantitative easing going on. And all told, the, the, the money supply has risen by orders of magnitude since the 1970s. And, and the way you or I would experience this is by walking into a store and slapping a $20 bill on the counter and seeing what you can get for it. When I was a kid, $20 bought you a lot of stuff. Today, you know, 20 bucks might buy you lunch if you're lucky. Yeah, I remember when a Reese's peanut butter cup was a quarter. That's how, you know, right, so yeah, there's yeah, the. Yeah. <laughs> um, but why, why haven't we seen inflation as a problem if it's been going up since the 70s or if the money supply, I'm sorry, should be go has been going up since the 70s? Why haven't we seen it reflected? Has has growth been equal to it, at least to some degree? Yeah, and that's the question you see, because economists will keep saying this thing. If you print more and more money, you're going to get inflation. And people say, well, hang on. We had 2008. We had the, the COVID crisis, lots and lots of money printing there and no inflation. What's going on here? And, and I argue that what's happening here is that as the Fed printed this money, it landed largely not in the markets for goods and services where we buy and sell cars and houses and shoes and socks and all of that. The money landed largely in financial markets. Now, what's the 
the difference? Well, the difference is when we calculate inflation, we look at the prices of goods and services, houses and cars and shoes and socks and all of that. We don't include the prices of financial assets, stocks and bonds. Those prices are not included in financial in uh, inflation calculations. And so as this money goes into financial markets, you don't see inflation. What you do see is a rising stock market. And going back to March, April of 2020, at the height of the lockdown and the COVID and all of this, and one third of small businesses across the country were closing and people didn't know how long this whole thing would last. People scratched their heads and said, well, hang on, how is it the economy can be in such doldrums and yet the stock market is booming? And it was, stock prices were going up and up and up. And I claim what was going on is those stock prices going up and up and up were the money that was going into financial assets. It was driving their prices up. Now, you can look at that and say, well, okay, but what's the problem? Because a rising stock market is good. And on the other hand, we don't have a lot of inflation, so it looks nice. Yeah, well, the problem is once things settle down, as they have been over the past few months, People become more comfortable about planning for the future. They become more comfortable about spending. That money will start to flow out of financial markets into goods and services markets. And that's where you'll start to see the inflation. And lo and behold, March, April, May, June of this year, we saw on an annualized basis record inflation. The one other aspect of inflation that I wanted to ask you about it, because I've seen you talk about it quite uh, eloquently is that we we also don't see in uh, my iPhone for example does you know in 1976 $200,000 worth of stuff or perhaps even more and th that's not reflected in the price either because I only paid say $1,000 for this correct yeah we don't handle those calculations well and I don't know I don't know how you can handle those calculations well. When every, well, not every single, but by the numbers, 98% of Americans are walking around with a device in their pocket that 50 years ago would have cost billions of dollars. You know, I mean, if you include that number, the inflation is like negative, you know, whatever, 10,000% <laughs> or something ridiculous. And, you know, and people talk about that, but look also interestingly at healthcare, because people say, well, the price of healthcare is going up and up and up which it is, but we never ask the question, but what about the quality of healthcare? And it turns out that although the price of healthcare has been rising, the quality of healthcare has been rising even faster. So much so that you or I could go to the hospital and it might cost us or it would cost our insurance companies six figures for a heart transplant and we would live. And you say, oh my God, six figures, that's a tremendous amount of money. Yeah, but hang on, 50 years ago, it could be an infinite amount of money and you wouldn't have gotten that heart transplant. Now it's only six figures. That's tremendous <laughs> deflation. <laughs> yes, tremendous. And uh, but then there's also the timing problem, too. Right. Is, is you know, the, the, the when when the government pushed all of this money out, especially to the to, to the markets and now even to us, it's six months late. We're st we're already in recovery, so to speak, unless everything begins to reverse, which we saw a little bit at the end of last week. But let's not talk, let's not think about that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is, so that's this a, this a timing a, problem, too. Yeah, it's a classic problem. We teach this, you know, to, to principals level uh, econ students. It's the lag, it's a timing lag. And that is, um, we have this tendency to think that, well, the economy's in recession. We see it's in recession. The government can do something and it fixes it. 
In fact, it takes anywhere from three to six months before we're aware that we're in, in, that we're in recession. And once we're aware, it takes the politicians time to figure out what, if anything, they want to do about it. And once they decide what, if anything, they want to do about it, they pull the trigger and things start to happen. And it takes sometimes six to nine months before you start to see results there. And so you can, you can end up very easily in a situation where you, you start to go into recession. And by the time you realize it and decide what you're going to do and start to take steps, the economy has already recovered. And I argue that we experienced that directly back in March of this year, 2021. Joe Biden comes out and says he's going to spend $1.4 trillion in stimulus. Yeah, but by the time he spends that, the economy is already in recovery. And what you get is inflation. It, the analogy I give my students is this. Imagine that I removed the, the windscreen from your car and replaced it with a widescreen monitor, a television, and I mounted a camera on the front of your, the hood of your car so that you would see on the television all the things that you would have seen had you had a glass in front of you. Sounds pretty good, except now here's the kicker. I'm going to put a 10-second lag between the camera and the display. You know, and now what's going to happen? Oh my God, we're going to be running into each other, traffic jams everywhere. That That's the lag. That's exactly what we have when it comes to conducting policy. Uh, by the time the politicians figure out what they want to do and take action, the economy more often than not has already corrected itself. Well, this is great conversation flying by as usual, but we're up against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is the soul of enterprise where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. And don't forget our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can get the show without commercial interruption, as well as our bonus episodes that's sponsored by 90 minds. Need a mind, get one at 90 minds.com. But now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You 
You're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Professor Anthony Davies. And Anthony, I'm probably going to bounce around on you a little bit more, but just to keep with what you were explaining about inflation, you wrote a great article in Fee, Modern Monetary Theory Isn't Economics. And you talk about the sleight of hand because it focuses on debt and dollars rather than resources and products. And I just thought the way you explained it was fantastic. Can you kind of explain it and tell us why it's a sleight of hand? Modern monetary theory, and and let me put the word theory in quotes, because this is not something (laughs) that would have seen the light of day were it not for the fact that politicians said, oh, here's something we can use to justify what we want to do. But other than that, this is a fringe thing that not all economists, but I would comfortably say most economists don't take seriously. The idea behind modern monetary theory is that you can print as much money as you want and do whatever, spend it, pay off your debts, whatever it is. And and when you press the modern monetary theorists on this point and say, well, look, you just, certainly it can't be right that you can just print however much money you want, nothing bad is going to happen. They'll say, well, it's possible that you could get inflation. And if you do get inflation, what they say is, well, you fix that by increasing taxes. So that with one hand, you have the Federal Reserve pumping more money into the economy. And with the other hand, you have the federal government taxing that money out of the economy. So you don't get a surplus of money. You don't get inflation, but you're printing however much money you want. And that that's the part I argue is the sleight of hand. Because what you don't notice with that argument is that what you have done at the end of the day is to replace consumers' decisions as to what it is they want to buy or not want to buy, you have replaced consumers' decisions with politicians' decisions. That is, as you jack up that tax rate, what you're doing is saying to consumers, you get less of a say in how we, our society, uses our resources. Who's going to have the the greater say? Well, it's going to be the politicians that are spending that printed money. And so at the end, you might end up with the same GDP and the modern monetary theorists would say, well, look, you've got a $25 trillion GDP. That's exactly what you would have had beforehand. Yeah, except what constitutes that GDP is very different. Instead of having $27 trillion worth of houses and cars and shoes and socks and shirts and food, you have $27 trillion worth of tanks and border walls and airplanes and roads and whatever else it is the politicians have wanted. So you you change the nature of the GDP and MMT people don't they tend to gloss over that fact. Do you think these this MMT uh, idea has permeated the halls of Congress and other politicians in Washington? It seems to have happened pretty fast. I mean, like faster than Keynes. <laughs> well, it's interesting you bring up Keynes because I argue the same thing happened with Keynes. That is, Keynes comes along with this theory and his general theory of the economy, and it's, it's, it's okay. Um, I think it suffers from some fatal flaws, but nonetheless, he comes along with this theory. And what happens? Politicians find it useful because they can take his theory and say, this is an, this comes from academia, this is PhDs economists, they've come up with this thing, and their theory says that spending money, government spending money is a good idea. And so 
Keynes' theory gets this boost in popularity simply because the politicians can make use of it. So too with MMT. It gets a boost in popularity because politicians can make use of it. And in both cases, what the politicians will do is quote the portion of the theory that fits what they want to do. So for example, with Keynes, they say, well, look, Keynes says if in times of recession, you need to increase government spending, which is correct. Keynes did say that. But what the politicians never say is what Keynes said next. He <laughs> said, and when the economy recovers, you retract government spending back to where it was to begin with. And somehow, you know, politicians aren't going to say that. Why? Because it's not in their interest to do so. Right. And so you get this weird politicalization of what should be an academic discipline. Boy, I hope the economists can push back on it. Uh, the other thing, Anthony, in just reading some of your stuff, you're not just an economist. And I know you're a Chicago, you're a Chicago school economist, right? I mean, very empirical, yep. you know, modeling data, all of that. But you're a serial entrepreneur as well. That's right. Yeah. That's that's kind of a rare trait for an economist. <laughs> well, that, it's it's actually a character flaw. I get bored about every five to seven years and say, I need something new. So I go start a company. And you know, I do the I'll start the company. I've started several of them over the years, and invariably several years into that, I'll say to my wife, please God, don't ever let me do this again. I'm going back to academia. And then five years later I start another one, right? And you know, and they've run the gamut. Some of them have gone public, some of them have gone bankrupt, some of them have been sold privately. Um so, so I have a, a wide range of experience there. And, and I can tell you something interesting about entrepreneurs that I don't think people appreciate. And that is entrepreneurs are very much like artists. And artists, and, and I say that, and I, won't, I don't say this often. Um, I have a history in theater and dance. And, and as an artist, what are you doing? You're taking yourself, your soul, and you're communicating it to, to, to someone. You're being creative. So too entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are just as creative as artists are, but there's a difference in focus. The artist tends to focus interiorly. What is it I want to communicate? I'm going to communicate my soul to you through the dance or the painting or whatever it is. Entrepreneurs are the other way around. They're outward focused. When an entrepreneur is creative, his, his thought is not, how do I express myself to you? His thought is, what do you want? What makes you happy and how can I fulfill that? And so in, in a lot of ways, uh, there's, there's these great similarities between the two, but there's also this very important difference of focus, internal versus external. Wow. You just gave, you gave very eloquently why our show is titled The Soul of Enterprise. That is exactly wow. what we try and convey. That's brilliant. The thing that fascinates me about it, and were you frustrated when you got to Chicago and realized that the economics profession doesn't have much to say about the entrepreneur? Outside of maybe the Austrians that I, I know you, I read somewhere you came to Austrian school a little bit later after your academic yeah. career. But, you know, outside of like Schumpeter and maybe some amateurs like George Gilder that write very passionately about the role of the entrepreneur, I mean, they're the lifeblood of a dynamic economy. Without entrepreneurism, an economy is just dead. 
Yeah, yeah, that's very much true. And and you know, being raised in the traditional form of economics, we don't talk that much about entrepreneurs. Uh, they're kind of a footnote of well, you know, if there's a shortage, then you know, more entrants will come into the market, and the price will go up, and the entrants will come in and create more of this thing. And and that's about as much as we say. Of course, the footnote is somewhere. Well, who are those entrants? Well, they're entrepreneurs, and they do whatever they do. And that's about as much as traditional economists will say. And then I run across these Austrians fascinating group. It's a, it's a minority of economists, but they think very differently about economics. They approach it from a philosophical perspective, from a human perspective, which is kind of ironic because it's a social science. It's supposed to be approached from a human perspective, but the Chicago School approaches it from a mathematical perspective. And, and so what do they do? They ask the question, what is it what is it about the person that makes an entrepreneur? How, do, how is this person different from other people? How does he behave in, in the marketplace? And so you get a much richer understanding of this really important piece of the economy from the Austrian school that you never get from the Chicago school. Yeah, no, that's very true. You, you know, you did a podcast back on June 14th of 2017, what you should know about poverty in America. And it made me think back to Nicholas Eberstadt, who came up, he wrote a paper once and he said, if we measured poverty by looking at consumption rather than income, it'd be like two or 3%. And it kind of just set the world on fire. It was very controversial. And, you know, I think about the war on poverty and it seems poverty's won, but what are the flaws in how we measure poverty? I think one of the major flaws in how, I'll give you a couple. One major flaw is that we confuse it with inequality. And so people will say things like, I'm against inequality, inequality is a bad thing. And if you drill down with that person say, well, tell me what you mean. More often than not, the person doesn't mean inequality at all. The person means poverty. So we confuse those two things. The other thing we do wrong is that we, we make this assumption that people have always lived the way we have. And it's astoundingly false. The middle-class worker, middle-class worker in the United States a hundred years ago had a standard of living that is less than a 725 an hour worker today. Quite literally, what we call poverty today, a hundred years ago, Americans called middle-class. We have become so ungodly rich that we've actually lost sight of what poverty really is. Yeah. No, I'd rather be poor today than yeah. rich anywhere a hundred years ago. It, it, it's astonishing to me that we're, we're still having this argument. Do, do you think UBI, and I know there's all sorts of problems with UBI, but as Charles Murray proposed it in his book, In Our Hands, where we have a constitutional amendment that wipes out all the other programs, in his book, even Social Security and Medicare, replaced it with UPI. Do you think that would be a better alternative? Yeah, I'm going to give you two answers here. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, what I think UBI is a much better solution than what we currently do. So if we were to you institute a UBI and at the same time do away with everything we do, all of the welfare programs, minimum wage, uh, healthcare, social security, all take away everything that we do to help people and just do UBI, that's a better solution. Now, that's not the solution that we'll get. What we'll get is UBI on top of what we have now, and that's a worse solution than what we have. So UBI is kind of this double-edged sword. If you do it right, it's better. If you do it wrong, it's worse. Right. 
philosophically, Anthony, if we did UBI the right way, do you, I still worry about it from a moral level. Like I, you know, I'm here and the world owes me a living. There's something that rubs me wrong about that. The world was here first. It owes you nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a question that I and, and my colleague, James Harrigan, go back and forth on, have done for years. And that's a question of what do we owe each other? We certainly don't owe each other everything we have, as as the progressives would tend to think. But I'm not entirely sure that zero is the right answer either. And and I would argue, if if we're going to make an argument that there are certain rights that you and I have by virtue of us being human beings, there's something special about being a human being that accords certain natural rights, then it raises the question, do I not have an obligation there? If I see you as a human being dying of starvation, do I not have an obligation to do something? And if the answer is yes, and I'm not going to say what that is, but if, if at all the answer is yes, then that says we do indeed owe each other something. I have no idea what that is, but I'm pretty sure it's not zero. Sure. It's compassion and charity. It's just yeah. that that can't be coerced. <laughs> Yeah, and then you yeah, and I don't know how to deal with that because if you coerce it, it's no longer moral. But on the other hand, if the person's going to die if you if somebody doesn't do something, then maybe coercion is the lesser of the evils. Right, right. There's not there's not a good answer to this question. Yeah, I, I love how you say that we've conflated poverty and inequality. My favorite proverb is a German one and it says, if you want equality, visit a cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly right. <laughs> but Anthony, this is great. Unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We will post full show notes of our interview today at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll also link to Anthony's books and others, other writings, which are fantastic. We highly recommend that you check them out. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercial commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it this is the voice america influencers channel be inspired 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Professor Anthony Davies. He is the author with James Harring- Harring- oh, I'm sorry. Harrigan, I'll get it right. I'm Irish. I should be able to pronounce that name very easily. Uh, Cooperation and Coercion, How Busybodies Became Bullies and What That Means for Economics and Politics. And Anthony, uh, let me ask you the question that all authors dream of when they're on a book tour. Tell me about your book. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. So I, I, of course, am an economist. Uh, James Harrigan is a a political scientist. And we sat down to write this book. And and what, what prompted it was the realization that anytime human beings come together to do anything, when there's more than one of us, we, we organize ourselves in one of two ways. We either organize ourselves by cooperative principles or by coercive principles. And with cooperative principles, everything's voluntary. We get together, we do things. If they work out fine, if they don't, you walk away, you do something else. With coercive principles, somebody tells you, you're gonna do the following and there's force behind what the person is telling you. And the book started out as as an argument that cooperation is good and coercion is bad. And so we write the book and we go through and we talk about all sorts of things, minimum wage and gun control and the drug war and da-da-da, all on and on, until we get to the last chapter. In the, in the last chapter, things aren't working. We've discovered that we're contradicting ourselves and pieces aren't fitting together. And it was after hashing it out, we realized that the story here is not cooperation, good, coercion, bad. The story is these are two tools that humans use. And the key to a flourishing society is using the right tool for the right problem. And more often than not, the right tool is indeed cooperation. But there are problems in which the right tool is coercion. And when societies go run afoul, it's because they've done, they've used the wrong thing, typically in the one direction of using coercion when you shouldn't. So it was using coercion in the first place that started the problem that you have to use coercion to correct? Or- <laughs> yeah, listen, that's, yeah, you say that, you, you know, that's funny to say, but it happens so frequently. And you, you can see this through history of the government stepping in and saying, we're going to use our coercive power to fix this problem. And if you dig into it, you find out the problem was created because of government coercion in the first place. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, it's the old adage of, of the, you know, the mafia guy who's going to um, break your leg, then sell you a crutch. That's the role the government's playing here. And, and so if you were to draw a line between, you know, what problems are for what problems are, is cooperation better for what problems is coercion better? There's, there seems to be a line. It doesn't fit in every case, but I think it fits in the vast majority of cases. And that line in the sand is the question, is this a problem in which someone is imposing harm on someone else? And when I say imposing harm, of course, it could be physical harm, but it could also be things like um, uh, defrauding, a company defrauding its customers. It could be something like someone polluting the environment. That's imposing harm on others. But in instances in which someone is imposing a harm on someone else, often coercion is indeed the right tool. But other than that, coercion is not the right tool. Cooperation is. Interesting. And so I wanted to ask you about that. And this is the, the, the notion of government getting involved in, in the price system. 
in most cases, it's that's coercive, right? And that's I oh, think yeah. this is why we see the high prices of healthcare and and college education and all this stuff. It's government action begetting government action, correct? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know, um, you had Thomas Sowell on uh, on your show earlier, and I love his quote to the effect of, "If you think healthcare is expensive now, wait till it's free." <laughs> you know, and and so too with higher education. Bernie Sanders talks about where we're going to make college free. Yeah, you think it's expensive now? Wait until it's free. It's going to be twice as expensive. And I'll give you a good example of this of the government, you know, using coercion to fix a problem that was caused by coercion in the first place. We. We debated in this country the ACA Affordable Care Act, and one of the big things that people were concerned about was the pre-existing condition problem, that I have insurance and I become sick, and uh, maybe in becoming sick, I lose my job. When I lose my job, I lose my insurance, and I can't get insurance again because I try to get insurance, and the insurance company says, well, you have a pre-existing condition. And we said, we need to do something about that. Well, hang on a second. That problem ultimately comes from the fact that your health insurance comes through your employer, why would that be the case? My home insurance doesn't, my car insurance doesn't, my life insurance doesn't. Why does your health insurance come through your employer? And it traces back to the um, early 20th century when in an effort to, to constrain inflation caused by the government, it's caused by Federal Reserve printing money, in, in an effort to constrain inflation, the government imposed wage controls. And it said, businesses, you may not increase your workers' wages. And what do the businesses do? I want to hire you for my business. And the way I normally do that is by offering you more money. And if I can't offer you more money, how do I get, how do I hire you? So what businesses did, they became creative. They said, okay, I can't pay you more, but I'll make contributions to your health insurance. I'll make contributions to your pension, to your retirement fund. And lo and behold, the government said, yeah, okay, that's all right. Because employer contributions to health insurance don't count as wages. So it was a way that employers got around this price control. And what happened? Well, um, government, because it was not counting health insurance contributions as wages, it wasn't taxing them. And so even after the price controls are gone, workers still want the employer to offer the health insurance. Why? Because if you give me a $1,000 increase in my wages, I walk away with $750 after taxes. But if you give me $1,000 in healthcare, I get the full thousand. So I would rather take my raises in the form of contributions to my healthcare. And before you know it, we're here at the present day when healthcare, just as a matter of course, comes through your employer. And that causes the pre-existing condition problem when you lose your, your job. It's a problem that the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, was designed to fix that actually was caused by government in the early, 19, early 1900s to begin with. Two quick points on that. One, Ron and I have interviewed Dr. Uh, Paul um, Thomas out of Detroit. He is one of the primary movers in the in the direct primary care movement, which I don't know if you're yeah. aware of that. A great entrepreneurial solution to this problem that, you know, so again, this is a good example of, of um, you know, uh, cooperation outdoing coercion, even yeah. in that sense. But. But the thing I wanted to say, because I think, Rick, I think I recently heard you talk, t tell this story on a podcast and it has to get out there again. The, the absurdity of what you just painted with regard to wage and price controls leading, begetting all of this stuff, only to be outdone by Wicker v. Philbin case, right, in the early or the, I guess it was the 30s. So uh, on how now government controls absolutely everything because in the in the guise of it's interstate commerce. 
Tell right. tell the story of Wicker v. Philbin. <laughs> yeah, and this this is astounding. So this guy, he's a farmer and he's growing, I forget what crop he was growing, wheat or corn or something. But the long and short of it is he's a farmer, he's growing this crop and he has cows. And he decides he's going to take some of his crop and feed his cows. There's there's no forget about interstate commerce there's no commerce going on right it's a dude growing wheat and feeding his cow and the uh, supreme court steps in in there there was a, a suit because people are complaining about various things that go beyond my understanding but there's a suit and the supreme court ends up saying well look mr farmer because you fed your cows the wheat you grew rather than going out on the market to buy the wheat you indirectly affected commerce. And some of that commerce would have crossed state lines, which means that you indirectly somewhat affected interstate commerce. Therefore, the government can regulate your growing of the wheat or the corn or whatever it is. This is astounding. And this is what comes about from the progressive era. We start the progressive era in the early 1930s, where all of a sudden, Americans, Americans' attitudes toward government change. Whereas before we regarded government as a necessary and dangerous evil, all of a sudden we start to regard government as this magic wand that we can use to solve all sorts of problems. You got a problem, pick up the magic wand and wave it at it. Maybe you'll get something better. And so what happened? People start picking up government and saying, do this, do that, do the other thing. The Supreme Court starts to find ways to justify what the people want the government to do by doing handstands and backflips around things like Wickard v. Filburn. And before you know it, you end up with what we have today, a $28 trillion plus dollar deficit. And why do we have this deficit? Because we have allowed the federal government to run run roughshod over its constitutional boundaries. If it were still bound by its constitutional constraints, the federal government would not be anywhere near as large. It would be a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the size it is today. I, I, by the standard of Wickard v. Fielden, Winston Churchill is also a carrot. It's not interstate, it's not commerce, but it's interstate commerce. Okay, right. Right. <laughs> and, and, and look, you, you point back to the 1930s, but we, the Supreme Court did the same thing just recently. When was it, 2015 or so, 2012, uh, yeah. with the Affordable Care Act? The Congress wrote the law and said, if you don't have insurance, you will get penalized. There's a penalty that comes along with this. And people file suit saying the Affordable Care Act is, is unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court says, well, it would be constitutional if that penalty weren't a penalty, but a tax. Now, Congress didn't say it was a tax. The White House never said it was a tax. Nobody said it was a tax. But the Supreme Court wanted to keep the Affordable Care Act. So they said magically, yeah, that penalty, that's really a tax. And bingo, Affordable Care Act remains, despite the fact that it appears nowhere under Article 1, Section 8 of the enumerated powers of the federal government. And Winston Churchill is a carrot again. There <laughs> Winston <we> Churchill <laughs> is a carrot. <laughs> it's, still a, it's still a carrot. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're up against our last break. Want to remind everybody that you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We would like to thank uh, Professor Davies. He's going to finish up with with uh, Ron in the last segment, author of Cooperation and Coercion, How Busybodies Became Busy Bullies and What It Means for Economics and Politics. Go out and buy it at your Amazon store or a bookstore near you. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody you were here with professor anthony davies and anthony uh jimmy carter once said that our income tax system is a disgrace to the human race uh what would you replace it with if you were king for the day, yeah. If if, if we we're if I was to replace it, I th- I think this is a knee jerk answer. I think I'd replace it with a consumption tax because remember, whatever you tax, you're going to get less of. If you tax income, you're going to get people working less. If you tax consumption, you'll get people consuming less. But then that means they'll be saving more, and that comes back to us in the form of you know. Um, um, investment in the future. I'm not saying taxes are a good idea to begin with. I'm just saying if I was going to do it, I think I'd do it by a, a um, this consumption tax rather than income tax. I know that's really popular because people figure, oh, it's going to get the drug dealer who goes and buys the Lexus at least, you know, and that type of thing rather it, than it gets, income tax. Yeah, it gets that, but it also gets somebody else. And that is when we think of the rich badly, we think of the idle rich, somebody who's sitting around on lots of money, not doing anything. What we don't think about is a guy who's working his tail off to do the best he can and spending frugally so he can retire. But that guy can retire rich, but we wouldn't say he's he's rich. And what's the difference between the two? That's That first guy consumed a tremendous amount. The second guy didn't. He worked hard, but consumed less. Right, right. Um, I am seeing more and more talk and just a push for industrial policy. You know, people are pointing to DARPA and moonshots and especially Operation Warp Speed, and only the government can do this. Why is this a bad idea? Um, It's a bad idea because, A, it's not true only the government can do this. And look at the SpaceX program, look at at Elon Musk. Um, Secondly, politicians and bureaucrats are, are some of the least capable people of determining how we should spend our scarce resources. So, you know, should it be on a moonshot? Should it be on a cure for some 
disease? Should it be on something else? The politicians and bureaucrats aren't capable of making those decisions well. Entrepreneurs, on the other hand, are. And what's the difference? The difference is the entrepreneur has a tremendous incentive to think very carefully about what he's about to do because it's his money and his investors' money on the line. The politician doesn't have nearly the incentive to think carefully about what he does because, hey, if he makes a mistake and it doesn't work out, we'll just raise taxes and try again next year. I know the idea that trial and error is done by the government better than the market is baffling to me. I mean, Operation yeah. Warp Speed, Pfizer didn't take any Operation Warp Speed money. <laughs> and of course, the people that uh, advocate for industrial policy, they never answer. They don't have a good answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, th- this is very much true. And, you know, there, there, you could probably point to instances in which there's something huge that the private sector would not take on, entrepreneurs wouldn't take on. Think about the moonshot back in the 1960s, right? With tremendous expense, tremendous risk. But if that's the case, if you're, if you're dealing with something like that, and I would argue that that's a very small fraction of the sorts of things we're talking about. But if you are dealing with something like that, the better way to do it is not for the government to found NASA and send someone to the moon. The way to do it is for the government to put a bunch of money on the table. Here's $10 billion. It goes to the first person, first company that can send someone to the moon and bring them back alive. And yeah. what happens? If somebody does it well, they get the $10 billion. If they don't, the government isn't out the money. It's still sitting there. And what have you done? You have just crowdsourced the problem. You've got you know millions of entrepreneurs trying to figure out the best way to get their hands on that $10 billion. Right, which is kind of what the market does writ large by itself, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah that's exactly that's how that's how the market works. Entrepreneurs think about what it is that customers would like that they're willing to give up their money for, and they go out and they try it. And if they're successful, like Jeff Bezos was, he gets tons of money. Where did he get his tons of money? We gave it to him because we liked his stuff better than we liked our money. Right. You know, a couple of weeks ago we did a show on woke capitalism. And I'm kind of concerned about that, you know, the CEOs getting into these political fights and all of that. But more specifically, do you worry about the ESG regulations that are starting to come out of the SEC and the Federal Reserve? Because I think some of these things are just a wet blanket on the economy and innovation. Yeah, I, one of the things that the government does well, I think, is, is disseminate information. So any sort of regulation that increases transparency, that increases the dissemination of information, I think is generally useful. Beyond that, there's nothing that those entities can do better than what the marketplace can do for itself. And more often than not, what they end up doing is creating problems that the marketplace now has to work around. Yeah, you talk about the COBRA problems, right? The unintended consequences. Uh, And I, I... Love your opinion on this. Do we need intellectual property laws? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, I have gone back and forth, and sometimes I go back and forth in the same month on that topic. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. So I don't, I do not know. I do not know. On the one hand, I don't see how intellectual property is any different than any other type of property. Yes, it's intangible. I get that. But I, I don't see how it's any different. You know, having a book, having written a book and looking for royalties kind of puts me in that camp, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, on the other hand, you know, there's an argument to be made that, look, if this product can be produced at zero marginal cost and this guy's holding on to it, he becomes a monopoly. Yeah, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know what the right thing to do here is. What the government has done or what we've done politically is to say, okay, we're going to do, we're going to split it both ways. And you, the inventor, can have monopoly rights to this thing for X number of years. And then at the end of that, the thing goes into the public domain. And I don't think that that's a good answer either, but it, Maybe I don't know whether it may be the best of the bad answers, but I think all you have here are bad answers. Yeah. But yeah. but what I would do is what you see happening. It started with Wikipedia. Leave it to the market to figure mm -hmm. out. And you have you know, Wikipedia coming up with all sorts of different classifications of of intellectual property. And whether this works or not, I don't know. But let the market figure it out, and the people who are involved will figure out what works and what doesn't. Right. The only thing that gave me pause in, in my younger self was the idea that, well, what about drugs? You know, these people need to be protected because it takes so much money. But of course, a lot of that is government driven, too. Yeah, a lot of it's government driven. And the thing that when I talk to my students about drugs and you say, well, here's this drug that it costs three cents to make a dose and the company's selling it for two hundred dollars. And I say, well, you know, clearly you have a visceral reaction to this. And to which I to which I, I say, imagine that you're that you've got a babysitter who watches your kid and you got to the movies with your wife, husband, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is, you come back and, and you pay the babysitter. Why? Why do you pay the babysitter? I mean, it's not like the person could take back the babysitting, right? The babysitting's <laughs> done. You just say, look, get lost. And, and immediately they know the reason you pay the babysitter is not for the babysitting that he or she just did. It's so they pick up the phone the next time. And that's why we pay $200 for that dosage that costs three cents to produce. You're not paying for that drug. You're paying for the next one. And if we pass a law saying that you have the pharmaceutical has to sell that drug for three cents, that's great. Everybody will get the drug for three cents and it will be the last drug you ever see. Right. I, we probably got time for only one more. But since it's close to our shores, what do you think will happen in Cuba? Do you think we'll see reform? Yeah, I think we handled Cuba badly from the beginning. The, what we should, you know, we did this blockade business going back to President Kennedy, and we're not going to trade with them. What we should have done was buried them in capitalism, trade with them as much as possible, and this would, you know, do a couple of things. On the one hand, it would help improve their standard of living. On the other hand, they would see the benefits of, you know, they'd say, "Well, look, look at these people I'm trading with. Their standard of living is is really good, and they're producing these great products." How can we get that here? Well, the way you get that here is by having a more economically free society. And this is, in fact, how North Korea stays North Korea, by drawing a big wall around itself and not allowing the people inside to have contact with the ones outside. Yeah. Well, Professor, this has been quite an honor. Thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. My pleasure. Thank you great. for having me. And stay with us as we go through a live close. But Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to have excerpts from our conversation with Dr. Reginald Lee about and his theories on how costing and project management and subscription all work together. Excellent. I look forward to it. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. 
In the meantime, please feel free to visit us on our Patreon site, patreon.com slash TSOE, or just thesoulofenterprise.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Sustainable success.